It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're about to listen to the 23rd episode of Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. On this week's episode, we remember the late, great Mike Nichols, who passed away just a few days ago. We also talk about Oscar shortlists, specifically the documentary shortlist, which is coming out soon, and why we should care about shortlists during award season. Uh, Anne catches us up on some films she finally saw. That includes Ida and the Tale of Princess Kaguya, uh, both of which are out now. And I finally saw Selma and American Sniper, neither of which have opened yet, but we spoke about them a little bit before, and now we speak about them a little bit more. We take a question from Twitter and we close with uh, a conversation about both The Hunger Games and one new film that's opening this week that doesn't figure into Oscar season at all, but absolutely is worth your time. Remember that you can subscribe to weekly updates to Screen Talk on iTunes and you can leave reviews of the show there. We'd love to hear what you think. You can also reach us on Twitter. I'm at Eric Cohn and Ann Thompson is at AK Stanwick. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the chief film critic, joined as always by Thompson and Hollywood's Ann Thompson. It's starting to get a little cold in New York, and I'm a little jealous, I gotta say. How are things out there in sunny LA? Well, this is the time of year where, you know, um, Frank Sinatra sings, you know, hate California, it's cold and it's damp, you know? In other words, it's not um, by any means really cold out there, but you don't have the heat on. And you have to wear a sweater in the house. You have to put a jacket and a scarf on when you go out. It's in the 60s here. (laughs) We're dreading it in any case. Uh, There is some cold news that we need to address at the start of this week's episode, which is the uh, unfortunate passing of Mike Nichols. Uh, He was 83 years old, and he died a few days ago. And um, one of the things I thought, thought was interesting about sort of the responses to his passing was, Nichols was a guy who was sort of consistently there for so many different periods, and yet it wasn't it wasn't like a showy career in the way that, say, you know, a Spielberg career would be. I mean, this is this is a filmmaker who worked in so many different modes with such a particular kind of focus as a, as a filmmaker, just you know, thematically and, and in terms of the way he worked with actors. That it was it was almost like people just sort of accepted him as a part of the culture, sort of transcended the idea of a filmmaker. He was just this great artist who worked in film and the theater and, and was great with actors, and almost like there, he was in a category of, of his own. He was. There's no question about it. But I, in a way, I don't think of him as a filmmaker as much as a director. And that means that he was working with other writers, whether it was Calder Willingham and, and Buck Henry on The Graduate or... T- Tom Stoppard on the real thing, or 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 the Monty Python guys on Spamalot. I mean, his range was extraordinary, and what he would do is bring out the best in the material that he was working with. He was a storyteller with wit and verve and extraordinary energy. And what struck me too, looking at his long career, was that he never seemed out of date. He never seemed. I mean, he 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 won a Tony for the revival of Death of a Salesman 
with Philip Seymour Hoffman in 1980. You know, he's 80 years old. Right. He's 80 years old. Right. And, and his last movie, Charlie Wilson's War, was pretty damn good, too. With, with Hoffman, yeah. yeah. He worked with the two Hoffmans, Dustin and, and Philip Seymour. And, and that's the thing. It was more about character actors. I mean, Meryl Streep has always defined herself as a character actress, and she did some of her best work with him in, in movies like Postcards from the Edge and, and Silkwood. Um, yeah, and Heart, Heartburn, right? So, so it's, it's, it's a, the, thing, the other thing I noticed as I was looking at it was that he's a, he was a Hollywood filmmaker uh, right. uh, or director. He worked inside the, the system, and it serves as a reminder of how that was possible once upon a time. I mean, there is a major migration to theater and to television, and it's not just... Um, you know, it wasn't just Mike Nichols who wanted to work in the theater and television. You know, Wit was one of his best things. Angels in America. Um, you know, these were things that weren't possible as films. Um, but but the studios just don't do this kind of adult material. Imagine a studio making Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, you know? Ain't right. gonna happen. Well, but I gotta say, I mean, he carried that with him through, you know, at least the 90s, if not the aughts, quite as consistently. I mean, you look at movies like The Birdcage or Primary Colors, which is, I think, my personally, the, the film that I, I like as a whole, even though, you know, The Graduate is this classic, there's The Carnal Knowledge, all these, like, really great, you know, almost subversive kind of movies about sexuality for their time. But, I mean, you look at the stuff he was doing later, and there was still the same kind of maturity, which seems to speak to this possibility that if you kind of find your way in that system at a certain point in time, you almost can, you can, you can sort of hold on to that. Well, know, he was a star. I mean, yeah. a Mike Nichols movie meant something. Um, well, he know. was also very charismatic. I mean, people liked yeah. the, having the guy around. I mean, I remember seeing him introduced on the waterfront at the Lighthouse Theater in New York, and he was hilarious, introducing <laughs> on the waterfront, you know? I mean, that's just... But there was something about it, like, all his movies are somehow weirdly funny, even if they're dramas, but not in this sort of crass way. I mean, they're just... Totally. They, that's just like, there's more life to them. And it makes me wonder if there are filmmakers now, you know, who are even trying or, or have the kind of discipline, you know, earlier in their careers to walk that fine line, to kind of understand how tone can be this expansive thing, and, you know. I mean, certainly I don't, I don't think we're seeing a lot of younger people who go from theater directing to making features in a, in a really, you know, dramatic sort of way, the way that Nichols did. You know, but he works a lot with producer Scott Rudin, and that's another care, you know, person in our industry who is a bridge between theater and, and film and who has extraordinary taste and who fights for literary material to get made. And so there are people, there are, there's the working title guys, you know, there's Harvey Weinstein, there's a small, very um, select few that are fighting the good fight for this kind of material. Right, and that's sort of, I guess, where it comes down to. It's, it's almost like it's not so much about the, the artist as the people around them who are enabling them to, um, to do the right kind of projects. And it's a very different kind of climate now for that sort it's, of thing. It's, it's, I think what disturbed me most, if you look at a place like the American film market, um, you know, recently, it's just the idea that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's making movies by the numbers and who's got cred and in what territory and who's bankable. Uh, for example, the, the Steve, Steve Jobs biopic that uh, got canned by Amy Pascal over at, at Sony, 
uh, she she put it in turnaround. Now that's a very high profile project with Danny Boyle and Aaron Sorkin writing what appears to be a 181 page screenplay, <laughs> and and they lost Christian Bale and got Michael Fassbender supposedly, although that's not nailed down. Um, so what happened there? It's a, it, it reminds me of what happened with Steven Soderbergh and Moneyball, which ended up getting made by by Bennett Miller and turned out to be a perfectly successful project. But you know, there's there's a question of how much is the studio willing to pay, how, uh, you know, for a high budget movie that that of a certain kind, and and in this case with Fassbender attached instead of bail uh, that's a that's like a foreign sales consideration. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like a marquee value. Numbers crunching formula. Why can't a studio say, you know, Fassbender's a great idea? Yeah. Well, especially yeah. in an era when it doesn't really seem like stars are your best bet the way that they used to be anyway. I mean, No, they aren't. Like There's very other... few of them. And, yeah. and, and arguably... <sighs> I would not. I would not say that 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 uh, there are any stars the way there used to be anymore. Uh, they're they're just not. They don't exist. Cruise means something in right. foreign markets. Yeah, I mean right? at AFM this year there were projects with people like Pierce Brosnan attached that were not selling because those names. I mean he's not like he's been in a huge hit in a long time, but I mean it's, it's just like name talent just doesn't mean something the way it once did because a lot of those movies flop. I mean look at last summer's blockbusters, you know. So I think, you know, if anything, maybe the opportunity to discuss Mike Nichols' career also opens up a bigger conversation about this increasingly, big, you know, sort of vast gulf, this chasm between what, you know, sort of the studios are doing now and what the indies are doing now. Right. I mean, if but you look in the at middle the, is that whole, you know, foreign sales solution, which isn't always the best answer. Right, right. That's no. why I wish that the that that uh, I mean even uh, uh, even the imitation game, which is going to be one of the the Oscar contenders, I suggest uh, to you. Um, it, the imitation game it was totally independently produced, yeah. and then Harvey came in eventually, and 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 so forth. It it's it's you know that's another yet another example of of, of something where where you know perseverance and and a big deep-pocketed investor uh, got got the movie made. Well, not to mention Boyhood. I mean, if you look at this recent uh, Hollywood Reporter roundtable that was just posted online, it's an executive roundtable. They got, like, Kevin Sugihara from Warner Brothers, and, you know, Fox, all, all these different people, Donald Langley, and then Jonathan Searing seems so, in there. Out, of, yeah, <laughs> so out of place. And Which if you, person does not belong? <laughs> but he's really, there because of Boyhood. Of That's why he's there. Yeah. yeah. No, representing absolutely. the indies. Yeah, exactly, which, you know, more power to him. Well, since we've shifted into Oscar conversation, uh, we should talk about the shortlists. Um, this week there were some minor shortlist stories with the uh, live-action animation shortlist that came out. We haven't seen those movies. Um, hopefully we'll get a chance to dig into that category once things are nominated and stuff. It's, there's more of a chance to see them. Uh, but there's a they lot of stuff going. They send those around, and, yeah. and they usually go on on tour, right. you know, around the country. So we'll yeah. we'll get to see those when the time is right. Today is the deadline uh, for the documentary branch uh, to vote for their shortlist, and then we'll find out about that December second or third. But maybe uh, we should like back up for a second and sort of talk a little bit about what exactly this means. I mean, because I think it's confusing for a lot of people when you see the shortlist. It's not the nominees. No, 
specifically no. what being What happens chosen. is there's a branch committee that that is going through the selection of the longer uh, films. Well, in the case of, of, of the shorts and animation branch, that's a pretty... That they've called through, and so there's once they've selected, you know, the the the, the shorter list of ten. That's then the whole branch looks at them all and their screenings, and everybody sits down and watches them, and then they vote for the five or the three to five. Sometimes it depends on they give it a, they give it some kind of um, uh, grade, and it has to have a uh, there have to be enough films with a high grade for it to make five. There's some rule along those lines. Um, along those lines. The, the doc branch, the entire doc branch is supposed to see as many movies as they can. They're sent packets of films and 20% of them are marked for them specifically, each one, each individual member to see so that they figured out a way for every single movie to be seen by somebody. Right, but somehow that math doesn't make sense to me. You know, it's just like, I mean, everything being seen by somebody doesn't mean that the right people are seeing the right things. I, I'm you know? really annoyed by this, and I'll tell you why. I'm not alone. There are a lot of people in the branch who don't think it's a good idea either. Michael Moore put through this big revolution, and a lot of people were not happy with it for because they believed in this. What they used to have were were it's a little bit more like the foreign branch where where there's a group of people who see this list of films and there's a group of people that see this list of films. The problem with that is that if you have um, a group of people that, for whatever reason, none of them were enthusiastic about Steve James' Hoop Dreams right. or Errol Morris's Thin Blue Line, it, it doesn't get in, right? So, so, and that was where there were these horrible oversights that occurred. So Michael Moore put in a more democratic sort of, here's all the films. They're getting sent to you by screener over the course of the year. See as many of them as possible. And what Rory Kennedy said to me, which I thought was very interesting, was that she likes being an expert. She likes having discernment. She likes figuring out which films are the best films to see, the ones that she has to see. She's a professional. There are certain films that go to festivals. There are certain films that win prizes. There's certain films that get raved about by critics. There's films that are selected for the top 15 at Doc NYC or that are nominated by the IDA. Or you know, There are all sorts of ways to figure out for you or me or, or you and I are going to be able to make a very educated guess as to what that top 15 ought to be. But this way, if you have limited time and you're told you have to see this set of films... Maybe all maybe they're all bad, you know. Right. Maybe you don't see the good ones. Oh, absolutely. And also, one of the things that I find weird about all this is that it it creates this perception that they're actually looking around to discover and and sift through various possibilities when the narrative is already making it kind of clear what people are going for. I mean, I spoke exactly. to two uh, members of the documentary branch last night at separate events in New York, and they both said basically that this is going to come down to Citizen Four versus life itself. I mean, I didn't hear any sort of, you know, uncertainty about that. And then my follow-up well, question, you know... let's put it another way, though. I agree with you that that's what it's going to come down to, but what we have is a situation where they're going to pick now the, the shortlist. And then when you have a shortlist, everybody sees those films. And it's only after you have the nominees. And, and so, all right, the doc branch 
has a very specific set of criteria. They they have certain biases. They they don't like reenactments or right. they're biased. I'm not saying this is true. I'm just saying these are the sorts of, Act, of biases like that are supposed to exist. Right. Or they don't like cause. CNN for some yeah. reason. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. If it, it, it seems like it's too pat, they want it to seem like there's real filmmaking happening. And agitprops. They're very susceptible yeah, exactly. to that. That's why Citizen Four is such a likely and there's such a dramatic narrative there, such a heroic narrative for Laura Poitras, you know. And and so, you know, it's sort of, and it's a great film, so it's sort of irresistible. But but life itself has its own drama as right. well. But Once it my, gets to the main academy and everybody votes on the five, that's when the emotional, heart-rending, the movie that turns people into mush, you know, the the twenty feet from stardom kind of thing, uh, right. the 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 sh- the Sugar Man kind of story. That's when those movies win. Right, right. Well, and then my follow up question is: Is there a spoiler among these kinds of the, those two? Mo- you know, the other possibilities. To me, it seems like Virunga is one that, if it makes the short list, could end up sort of coming up between those two and splitting the difference between you know if there's any kind of resistance around one or the other. I, but the, what's interesting to me is just the the Doc Branch people that I've spoken to about it. Virunga is a movie that is uh, it's a it's an activist film, but it's it's very well made. And they're like Citizen Four. There's footage that put the filmmaker at risk in some way, the more immediate kind of risk to his life because he was running around with uh, you know you know in like a poachers and stuff like that in this African park. Um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, it, what's, what's, what's interesting about it is that the doc filmmakers don't admire that movie quite as much, but they, they, they see that it's well made to the point where it's like, they can't ignore that it should be part of this conversation. And that suggests to me that that could be sort of a dark horse at this juncture. Well, the movie that I think is the, just stunningly beautiful, I mean, just beyond compare to anything else that's been made is The Salt of the Earth, the Vin Vendor's Salgados movie. It's interesting that there's two movies about photography, so Finding Vivian Mayer is also very impressive, although that, I think that filmmaker is coming in from the outside. He's not necessarily an established part of the uh, the film community. Keep On Keeping On is the sort of um, sugar man of this race, the movie that, or the, or the 20 feet from stardom. It's, it's about mentorship and it's about, about, uh, an artist and his relationship with, with his protege. And and it's so moving. It's just a a remark. I mean, the, the degree to which the filmmakers, again, outsiders and, and newcomers, um, Alan Hicks got, and his team, you know, they got in so close and so, so, so embedded with, with, with the uh, with the with with Clark Terry, the, the jazz musician. Right. Um, did you see the E Team? I still haven't seen E Team, but I actually did just receive an award screener for it, so I know that Netflix is is pushing on that one. But it's that's seems very like, good too, and and about heroic behavior. Right. You know? Although I have to say, I mean, just thinking about the documentaries I've seen this year, season four is my favorite. But there's a lot of stuff that's not even being discussed. You know, whether it's the dog about the the character who inspired Dog Day Afternoon, or <laughs> you know Jodorowsky's Dune, which is a wonderful movie about the you know the Alexander Jodorowsky's film that was never made, and uh, you know things like that. I mean, there's Particle Fever, and uh, Frederick Weissman did a new documentary this year, and so one of the things that's interesting, just talking through the whole shortlisting process, is that 
even though you know it's an interesting way to kind of evaluate some of the better documentaries that were made this year, it's automatically going to rule out some of the more adventurous ones, some of the weirder ones, and so even here you see kind of the narrow parameters of, of what happens with the Well, there's race. more campaigning going on, that's for sure, than there used to be. It used to be very pure, and I think that's part of what some of the the purest doc members are, are arguing right. against, but there's, the train has left the station. There's nothing yeah. they can do about that. The other one that I really liked was Elaine Stritch, uh, Shoot Me, which, which is a showbiz doc, obviously, but they capture this amazing, tenacious talent you know, behind the scenes, all naked and vulnerable, you know, really, you know, sick and unhappy and fighting her alcoholism. And it's, and, and it's just a, a terrific job that they did on that. And then I've talked about Last Days in Vietnam, which seems to be gaining some buzz as more people see it, a, a sort of an unexpected take on, on the, uh, the ways that, that certain members of the military behaved heroically when they left uh, Vietnam. And then Red Army, which is a very well-made, entertaining movie about, about how Russian hockey changed the world of hockey and that one very charismatic coach who came to the U.S. and became very successful and then had to go back to Russia. Yeah, it's okay. I liked it okay. Honestly, if I had one vote for one movie I would like to see on this shortlist, one thing above all, in spite of the fact that I would say Citizen Four is my favorite documentary of the year, one of my favorite movie-going experiences among movies that were released, albeit very limited this year, was uh, Monica Mana, which is you know essentially an experimental movie shot in this uh, trolley car going back and forth between the entrance to this mountain and uh, temple and, and the bottom of the mountain. And, uh, and, you know, basically includes all these different faces and characters passing through there. Um, yes, it's, it's, it's a challenge in terms of, you know, a narrative experience. But it, a lot of people I've spoke to, spoken to who aren't necessarily uh, interested in, in kind of cutting-edge cinema found the movie to be this really wonderfully contemplative experience. So it's accessible. And it took a year to make. It's a really interesting accomplishment. I can't imagine something like this getting an Oscar nomination. That would be even more radical than Act of Killing last year. But personally, to see something like that on the shortlist would be exciting to me. Or The Overnighters, which I know divides people as well. Yeah, I had issues with that. But but um, it still seems to have quite a bit of, of support. And I'd be curious to see... I mean, are you... I'm, I, let's just assume that the, that the New York and L.A. Uh, critics groups are likeliest to go with Citizen Four, aren't, don't you think? Or are they going to reward their own with life itself? Because it's often, the you know, one of the... It, it, the critics groups can be very helpful in focusing attention on a particular doc. To me, it seems most likely that Citizen Four is going to rule the day just because of the volume of movies that people see. Like, a lot of critics don't see enough movies to really have a sophisticated sort of ballot here. As, as much as it seems like, you know, critics see a lot of movies. It, it just seems like they're going to, a lot of people are going to go in and just sort of say, yeah, probably it's Citizen Four. I would say on the New York side of things, I mean, being a member of that group, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly, you know, how things are going to go down, but I will say, you know, what people do is just get in a room and start voting, and with a category like this seems like it'll go a lot faster than some of the other ones where there's just so many different things that people have seen and will be considering, and I assume also that life itself will have more of a, a difficult time with film critics because some people like it and other people are, you know, mixed on Roger Ebert's legacy or they, you know... The whole idea of a documentary about a film critic doesn't sit well with them. So to me, it's like in that particular race with the critics group, Citizen Four automatically has the upper hand. 
Now, uh, do you think, um, is it your sense that critics are catching up with all the animated, animated films? You know, I have to tell you, there was a vote uh, uh, at one point not to include the animated category uh, if, if uh, there weren't enough movies to vote on. And the challenge is that, that there, it's, a, it's always a smaller field. In some ways, that's a blessing and a curse because if you oh, didn't like there's usually it, 16 or so. Yeah. But, I mean, if you didn't like the you know, four or five big ones that you happen to see, then you know, it's really hard to say, well, I'm just going to vote for the, the one I, I disliked the least or something. Yeah, you know that's what I mean? true. And so some people just don't like animation. A lot of, yeah. There's a large group of people that it's family fair or they just don't take it seriously yeah. or they, they don't enjoy it. Um, I take it seriously as an art form. I, I really do. Um, oh, and I'm a huge animation junkie. I mean, I, I, I seek these things out as much as I possibly can. Um, and I and I pay attention to a lot of the shorts. You know, Don Hertzfeld's shorts are, I think, some of, some of the best uh, kinds of, of movies being made today because the DIY sensibility is sort of married to the art itself. But you know, the the thing that's interesting about that category is that if there is one animated feature that seems like it skews older, it usually will have the upper upper hand in the critics groups, if not the. Um, in the Oscar race because of the way that, you know, the marketing plays into that situation. So this is actually an interesting way for us to talk about a movie that I know you've seen and I haven't seen yet, but it seems to me like the, the tale of princess Kaguya, which is a studio Ghibli film would be the one that a lot of people are going to gravitate towards because compared to, Big Hero 6 or How to Train Your Dragon 2 or something like that. It's well, just... for one thing, it's 2D, and it's beautiful 2D. It's very long, actually, um, and it's not Miyazaki, so That's so it's, it doesn't have that imprimatur, but it, it's it's a beautiful, uh, uh, extraordinary folktale, you know, just... And, and the way that, that, that the artists use uses a, a kind of charcoal... Um, sketchy, you know, uh, drawing uh, style for for this, it, it, and then the landscapes and the way that they use nature. It, it's there's a there's a scene where the young princess is running from the city to back to the country in in a storm and and through the elements and getting ragged and and it's. Um, stunningly beautiful and very impressionistic it's it's this is far from from any kind of of you know the usual 3d depiction of, of things even though they're often stylized this is really uh different and and i i highly recommend that you see it whether i and i added it i added it to the my list of five uh front runners for animated feature on the oscar chart now, that's not the only foreign language film that you've caught up with recently. There's another one that I've been singing the praises of for a number of episodes that we can finally Yes, I finally saw Ida. <laughs> Congratulations. I got the, the Blu-ray that I wanted, you know, so thank you. Which is, it, it's important. Sent me the, the Blu-ray, and it, it, my God, I see why everybody told me to see it on the big screen. It's stunning. It's, it's absolutely yeah. stunning. Uh, and compositionally alone, I mean, it's in black and white. The, the, the look of each frame, each composition is so beautiful. It looks like some of those great black and white photographs from, from, the, from the West, you know, like the Texaco station. Or, yeah. You know, it's just stunning. 
Yeah, no, Edward Weston or something like that. That's how. That's the level of of the uh, of the photography in, in this film. It looks like a you know Bergman movie or something, but yeah. then it has something else going for it, which is that it's in spite of the fact that it's got this very heavy theme and it's dealing with history in a very interesting way. You know, this nun who finds out that she's Jewish and her parents died in the Holocaust. It's also funny and, 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 and kind of like this fun road trip story in a weird way, in spite of the fact that the framework is very different, that it, it feels at once like high-minded and, and also kind of sweet and, and intimate. No, it's earthy. It is earthy. Yeah. And there's a, the, 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 it's very carefully written and carefully laid out. It's, it's got a program. It's got, a, it's got an agenda. And when you get to the end and you realize what it's saying, it's it's it sort of hits you. It sort of gobsmacks you on what 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 it's where it's going, uh, and you don't know where it's going. You have no idea where it's going. Um, but there's the the aunt who's very jaded and intellectual and and you know um, powerful in her own way as as a judge, as an advocate, and 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 but she's smoking and having sex and going to jazz clubs and dancing and then you've got this aesthetic pure nun <laughs> you know who's sort of wide-eyed and just soaking it all in and trying to figure out how she feels about everything and not knowing anything imagine that you're a complete blank slate and you know nothing about your family or your history or anything and you and you're flooded with it all at once Right. Intense, very intense movie. Notably, the, if you see, uh, right now it seems like with for the foreign language Oscar category, the, there's three movies that people are talking about as the most likely contenders. One is that one. There's Force Majeure, and then there's the Dardenne Brothers film, Two Days, One Night, and they're all basically about these strong-willed women dealing with the kind of you know really tense scenarios and in a very unconventional way. So it's it's. Um, that's an interesting category to look at, but uh, oh yeah, seem... but there's Leviathan also from from Russia, which right. deals with corruption and, and that's the most dour possibility, I would say, and maybe it would have to be put in by the yeah. by the committee, yeah. I think, and then Timbuktu, which I am sort of calling for the win. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful movie. I mean, it's um, it's a because it's so you know it's so accessible and so universal and so. So unexpected, uh, and it deals with jihad. You know, the jihad in in um, Malia. You know, uh, pretty amazing. Uh, and I, I guess two days, one night from the Dardens and uh, Wild Tales from Argentina would all be in the mix right. as well. Well, it's a really interesting crop of movies. As usual, I think maybe one of the most exciting categories just for the variety of of, uh, of the films in the mix. Uh, I, I caught up on a couple of things that we spoke about last week, uh, Selman and American Sniper, which um, we actually received a comment from somebody who had hoped that we had gone, you know, sort of dug in deeper into these movies. And I think that, you know, now that I've seen them, we can try to do that a little bit. Um, That's what you're about, Eric. Yeah. You're about depth. <laughs> we need to get deeper. We need to talk about these Any movies. Any chance to talk more. <laughs> we need to go deep. We need to get to the heart of this matter and, and reach a conclusion about both of these movies, which actually, honestly, I mean, I think they're both pretty solid. Selma... Um, I would agree with you. It's not, it's not a perfect movie, but it's a perfectly satisfying movie in a lot of Absolutely. ways. Absolutely. It plays very well. It works. Yeah. You know, it's a, so it's interesting. I mean, it, 
as I heard Ava do very nice say at a Q&A, you know, that they really put this emphasis on not making it really just like an MLK story. It's sort of about the people of Selma, and they, they do that well. I think as, as hard as it, it is for me to say this, uh, the white characters are sort of underwritten in a way that's uh, somewhat problematic, and it reminded me well, of... Well, I the... figure that it's time, it's time that, uh, it's time that, yeah, they're... Even even evening up the score sure. on that front. I mean, they're, they're, I, they're, we, we owe them a lot of, of, of underwritten characters. I can right? appreciate that from a historical dimension. But what's interesting about it is that it's, it's a movie that, for the most part, plays it straight. So, you know, that, that sort of pulled me out of the story to some degree. But what Were I think you is, bothered by the president, uh, the president and the governor, the, the, the Wilkinson and, and um, Roth? Uh, somewhat, and also the sort of J. Edgar Hoover was was not particularly convincing to me, um, you know. But but uh, uh, you know, fortunately, none of these people are really the main characters of the movie. And um, David Oyelowo is amazing uh, as as King, completely convincing. And I actually saw more of a connection, even though some people were saying it's kind of like the Butler in some ways. I don't. I think that's condescending and sort of misses the mark. To me, it's closer to Lincoln. Um, you know, it has more of a sort of accessible emotional element to it on the surface, but um, it's a, it's really about backroom strategy and, and the way people sort of talk through how to make a showing that will get them the results they need, both from the you know people at large, the way the media sort of processes what they're doing, and also from the White House and seeing well, how that really works. What's really satisfying out. is the way that that uh, that that Martin Luther King goes up against the president and gets what he wants. That to me is just that's the rabble rousing element of the movie that I like the most. Yeah, no, it's 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 a very satisfying movie for what it is. It's not. Um, it did not feel to me like sort of a major accomplishment on a number of levels it just felt it felt like a, a serviceable uh encapsulation of, of one particular moment and and it gets that across very well especially in, in the speeches as, as you said before the speeches worked really well yeah. but it is a low budget film so you know in some ways it's it's going up against you know better funded bigger bigger guns um but as we said as i said last time i do think that there's going to be so much goodwill toward it um across the board and the, the academy is very liberal and i and i think that critics for the most part while they may have some some nitpicking to do finally they're going to i think they're all i think everybody's going to be very supportive of the movie and bottom line is it plays it plays really well yeah and and um you know i think in, in terms of those performances you know it's it's it is hard to debate what um david oyelo is doing here i feel he like may get time, in he yeah. may be getting that fifth slot it does it seems like he would be sort of the the, the one in line maybe knocking out yeah. mcconaughey or yeah. Hines or exactly. spall or Jillian hall you know those and and then american sniper what did you make of uh, the 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 muscle-bound uh, bradley cooper <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, look, it's a very... It's shocking, uh, actually. I mean, I wasn't shocked to see a very masculine Bradley Cooper movie directed by one of the most masculine uh, faces in movie history, Clint Eastwood, you know? And it, what's interesting about it, I think it, I think it's a very slick, well-made war movie that, that the suspense sequences are incredibly well assembled. That's the best stuff. That's um, the stuff Clint was obviously interested yeah. in. And, and the way that it kind of deals with the ambiguity of, of, of war and sort of the in the battlefield, sort of having to make these split-second decisions and taking lives and so forth, I think 
it plays relatively well. It gets a little redundant after a while. I agree. Very repetitive. Very, yeah. very dull, actually. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's like, and, and, which was to some degree my, my issue with, I mean, I hate to say it, but Jersey Boys. This is a much better movie than Jersey Boys. But it does kind of feel like the Clint's movies just don't have the same kind of edge they once did. And this movie It's almost get like he's, he's gotten into this habit of being sort of good at his job and, and having it come easily. And he's got the team and he's on on location and he's got you know he doesn't care about perfection he doesn't he never has so he really doesn't push for the best that he can get he doesn't he lets it go and he got he's he's infamous for moving on and being in a hurry and just getting it done and and he's so competent he's so good but at the same time he doesn't reach anymore it seems for that next level of of excellence that's what i feel about this film that it's missing that that next level of focus but it is a commercial movie i mean weirdly enough, it'll do well yeah a lot of a lot of guys are going to go see this on christmas day it's going to do well in flyover land as they say in the trade totally and uh, you know it's got the right guy behind behind it in that respect. Um, so but I don't see Bradley Cooper as good as he is, and he's very good. Yeah. I, I just don't see him being competitive with David Oyelowo at all. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's another hint that he, you know, he's somebody who continues to build towards what presumably will be some kind of terrific career-defining role. You know, the fact that he's in this movie and also plays Rocky Raccoon and Guardians of the Galaxy in in a six-month period, you know, says something about the sort of versatility he's going for. He's a great actor. He's a wonderful actor. Well, speaking of performances, we did get a question on Twitter uh, this week from Graham Hay, who asks for our favorite two movie performances, male and female. I'm going to make it more specific and say for the year, because favorite two performances ever is not... You know, whatever that 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 could mean. You know, it's just too difficult, I think. But um, for me, I would say it's it's still Jake Gyllenhaal and Nightcrawler. As much as you know, I I, I respect things like um, you know uh, Michael Keaton in uh, in Birdman. I, I really feel like Gyllenhaal's performance is is the one that got under my skin more than any other. So that's that's the one that I'm really sticking to. And then in terms of of uh, female performances, honestly, I mean this is. It's a little strange, but I, I'm, I'm going to say Elizabeth Moss in, in Listen Up, Philip is still my favorite. Um, wow. I've seen that movie twice. and um, She's good. She's, she's really good in that, and really she's good. good in everything she does. I would go for Tom Hardy in Locke. I just think that's an amazing movie. Hardly anybody saw it. I think that's the tour de force and uh, he is stunner the of a performance. Yeah, I mean, he is the movie. It's just him in a car the whole time, so you better be able to pull that one off. You know? Yeah. And, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good showcase for him in that respect. And I'm going to argue for Hillary Swank and the Holmesman. It's a good battle to fight. <laughs> and the reason for that is that is that she is unusual among actresses. I find that there, uh, no one else does what she does. She did it in Boys Don't Cry and won an Oscar. She did it in Million Dollar Baby and won an Oscar. And she doesn't hear. Which is this, to reach inside herself and reach out to the audience in some weird way that makes us really care for a wounded character who isn't like anyone else and makes us really emotional about her. Well, it's interesting to talk about that one because the movie just doesn't quite get to the same level as that performance, so... You know, it's, it's. I know it's a weird, it's a very strangely structured movie, a very weird movie, um, that that is hurt by its strangeness. But 
but that performance is it still haunts me it haunts me well speaking of performances versus quality of, of movies i know you have some words for the hunger games movie which opens this weekend do you want to share well i when i love those books the suzanne collins books i love the first two films um they're both excellent i think jennifer lawrence is a great katniss everdeen um and she carries this one yet again on her sturdy shoulders but they decided to split mock and jay into two movies and it's a disaster frankly you have a situation it reminds me a little bit of the second Twilight movie, where Belle um, is is uh, Bella is uh, you know depressed. <laughs> there's, there's a whole thing, and there's hardly any Edward. You know, right. it's it's a, it's a problem. Um, so this movie is sort of like that, where you have a lot of problems and a lot of uh, dour faces and. Um, there is some action, um, luckily, but uh, no, co- no fabulous costumes, no color, no um, uh, capital, you know, there, there's, you know, poor, uh, so the, the characters are all in drab, which is disgust, you know, but, but it's, it's, and, and PETA is, is, has been, t- you know, is, is, is in the Capitol and, and there's some good cross cutting, uh, back and forth, the, the way that they, it's an interesting, uh, 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 sort of essay on, on using media and using propaganda. And so there's a propaganda war going on, which is interesting, but finally it's a very dull movie and we are going to get all the action in the second part. And the people at Lionsgate made a calculated decision that they would rather, you know, they did it with Harry Potter and, and yeah. they did it with Twilight. And they're going to do it again. Well, I, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing it this weekend and thinking it through myself. I haven't read those books. I hadn't read the Twilight books either. And I have to tell you, part one was way more interesting to me because it was just so all over the place. It's like without having the sort of context of knowing where that story was going, just seeing all this chaos build up, and then all of a sudden the movie just ends. I was like, this is, this would be a really cool movie if it was just sort of that was it, you know? And then she became a vampire with this huge war going on outside with werewolves and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the problem is that there's like this tremendous allegiance to fandom to the point where the movies only have to really make sense to the people who need that in order for the the product to deliver. I mean, that just seems like what we're talking about here. You know, it's like, it's not even about good storytelling, you know, in terms of how movies work. It's about just allegiance to things that this core fan base needs to be there. So it's a, it's a weird kind of conundrum to sift through. And maybe if I, if I feel up to it, we can come back to it next week. But I will say that, you know, those who are less inclined to go see The Hunger Games Mockingjay have some other good options. The the one that I would single out that's opening in limited release uh, this weekend is, is A Girl Walks Home Alone Tonight, which is a first at, feature. At night, at night, right? A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Right. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, it was a first feature from a Iranian-American director named Anilali Amirpour that premiered at Sundance this year, sort of under the radar, with a neat discovery, black and white. Uh, evocative tale of this uh, vampire who's haunting a, a fictional community uh, called Bad City and the uh, relationship that she forges with this young man whose father is a drug addict and it starts out seeming like on some level it's going to be kind of a wacky genre movie. With time it becomes something much quieter, poetic, sort of sad. It's more sort of this, this tone poem about alienation with some really beautiful music 
I've seen it a couple of times, and, it, and what I think is really fascinating about it is a great movie to me isn't really about story, and you know maybe it never has been, but certainly now more than ever when we turn to TV for story, I think uh, you know on every kind of level movies speak to us as as sort of you know moment to moment kind of experiences, and that's really what this movie is. The way that the soundtrack plays into the visual appeal. It's just a really extraordinary kind of experience on a number of different levels. And um, also it seems like a good discovery for, for somebody who really wants to do things that are not, you know, inherently commercial, to go back to what we were talking about before. I mean, this is not somebody who's now going to direct a franchise movie. You know, and that's always exciting to me, too. When somebody really has a fresh vision and they're not really interested in, you know, trying to make things accessible. It's more like, you know... You figure out if this movie is accessible once you go see it, or figure out what it's trying to do, and then it will be accessible to you. Like that sort of process is more interesting to me. So I hope people go check it out. Um, you know, all that being said, there, there's a lot of stuff still left uh, to see this year. And as um, you know, our yes, we're uh, going to see Into the Woods this weekend, and we're right. going to see. Um, which, by the way, has good word around it. I can't wait. It's Sondheim. I can't wait. You know. Well, you know what and you're going to get in terms of the music, so we yeah, can set that yeah. aside. You'll get, you'll get a great... I mean, I, I'm fond of this musical anyway. Um, and then um, and then next weekend is Unbroken, and uh, you're, you, uh, I, I have to catch up with Big Eyes, which is screening, and then, then we'll be done. So we'll have a lot to talk about next week, and... Um, Hopefully we can... Have a good uh, Thanksgiving. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Thanksgiving, of course. So those who are in need of catching up on a, on a lot of different movies now, it's the time uh, we'll all have stacks of screeners to go through. I don't even know what my blind spots are now, but I have a feeling that when I start going over the list, there, there's going to be a lot of them. So we'll have plenty to talk about next week. Till then, Anne, enjoy your break. You too. the words really says a bit. She know we just friends. Don't you love benefits? Rich girls with beamers and country club memberships. Yeah, we're playing golf is the hobby. Where the grass is green and the culture is snobby. When she needs a rip, she'll call her friend Robbie. Rich girl with a trust fund. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 